Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we bring you yet another listener mail episode. In this case, we've been combing through an, what seems like an infinite library of listener mail. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, going back to your guys' uh, Library of Babel episode. Yes, uh, our inbox contains not only all listener feedback, but all possible listener feedback <laughs> from the positive to the negative, from the sensical to the nonsensical. Uh, sometimes like it. it does feel like that. We get a ton of listener mail, but I must say that uh, we also it's it's basically crimson hexagon stuff. Yeah. In that it's almost all really good stuff. I would say we yeah. we we hear a lot of great feedback from y'all out there. And so we have to say, as always, we get tons of mail. If, uh, if what you sent us was not included, please don't take that as a slight. We, we love reading, uh, whatever you get to send us. And we like to respond when we get time, but we often don't. But, uh, we're going to pick a few today. We won't be able to, to go through the whole barrel, but maybe we'll be able to, uh, not scrape the bottom of the barrel, but scrape some of the sides of the barrel near the top. Luckily, we have, uh, a, a fourth entity here to do any scraping that's necessary. Oh, and that's, yeah. of course, uh, our good friend, Carney at the mailbot. Ah, yeah. Hey, Carney, what's going on? I've noticed that Carney has taken on what seems to be a somewhat melancholy suicidal aspect since we entered this vast library of all possible email. <laughs> well, it's a lot to, to sort out, even with his uh, his high processing speed. Even Carney only has so much RAM. <laughs> RAM. <laughs> Oh, why is it funny to talk about RAM now? RAM used to be a thing you'd talk about all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Not anymore. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, on that note, uh, well, let's, uh, let's, let's jump into it. Let's call Car- Carney over. Carney, will you bring us our first bit of listener mail? Hey, let's see. Okay. This first one is in response to the episode that Robert and I did about flying fish, jumping fish, flying fish, breaching sharks, leaping mullets, all the fish that do the equivalent of us jumping into outer space momentarily. Uh, so this first one is from Mona and she, she, if you remember from that episode, Robert and I, we talked about a couple of species of Asian carp that are known for occupying uh, North American river waters, jumping out of the water when your motorboat goes by and in some rare cases breaking your face. <laughs> yes. Or, or worse. Yes. Yeah. And so as we discussed, there's this Chinese cultural concept of the carp that leaps over the dragon gate, right? Literally a mythical concept that if a river carp can leap over a certain Certain waterfall, it's going to transform into a dragon. So it's a magic carp turning into Girardos. Uh This is exactly what the email is about. Is I it? had no idea about this, but oh, uh, Mo- Pokemon Mo- Go. Yeah, Mona writes to us to say. Hello, Robert and Joe. I just finished listening to the Leaping Mullets, Flying Fish, Breaching Sharks episode of the podcast. I just wanted to give you a fun fact about the Chinese mythology of the leaping carp turning into a dragon. If either of you have played or know of Pokemon, the video game, or the popular TV show, I think that's funny. She specifies popular. Uh, <laughs> it's still popular after all these years. Is it? Yeah, I think People so. People still watch the Pokemon cartoon? Oh, yeah. My wife used to work at Cartoon Network, and it's a huge hit over there. Oh, so. that's amazing. Yeah, yeah it, they, it, they constantly they're putting out new seasons of it. Uh, really? I had no I idea. Know. They're making more Pokemon. It's, it's been around since 
I was in my 20s, so it's got to be like, what? They've been working on it for probably like almost 20 years, I 19? think that's the thing. It, it came, it really emerged after I was out of the main demographic. Yeah. So. I was just immature enough to to play the video game and watch the cartoon <laughs> a little bit in my 20s. <laughs> so I know way more than a 39-year-old man should about Pokemon. Okay, well, I didn't know this. But anyway, Mona continues, uh, if we know about Pokemon, you'd be aware of a Pokemon called Magikarp. It has always confused my friends and I how this pretty useless fish, I guess that means not a good fighter. Yeah, so uh, in the game, Magikarp is like the worst possible Pokemon. It can barely do anything. But if you level it up. Oh, okay. She says, yeah, it ends up evolving into a completely overpowered dragon type Pokemon. Gyarados? Gyarados. Gyarados. This Pokemon is actually inspired by the said myth that you mentioned in your podcast, which gives this evolution a lot more sense. I know. Mind blown. (laughs) And and then she says, thanks for making quality episodes, regardless of how weird they get sometimes. I love each and every one. My favorites being the X-Files episodes and Uh the mystery of the myth-fleshed fossil. Looking forward to more. Well, thank you so much, That's Mona. Cool. That is very kind of you to say. And uh, we also got emails from a couple other listeners on the same topic. Jeffrey wrote in to let us know. about Same thing about Magikarp and Gyarados? Mag- yeah, I had no idea. Oh, man. I, yeah, I wish I'd known. Gyarados was like one of my favorites. Like when I would play the game, I would always get a Magikarp. And, like, keep them in reserve, level them up slowly, and then once you get Gyarados, it's awesome. Wait a minute. You said you played the game a little in your 20s. This sounds like you played a lot. Uh, the Yeah. <laughs> I played a lot. Uh, I had a Game Boy and would just play, what is it, Pokemon Gold, I think was what it was. And then uh-huh. my roommates and I got Pokemon Coliseum, which is the one where you can plug your Game Boy into your Nintendo 64 and fight your Pokemon against one another on the TV. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was great. That Good sounds, times. That sounds brutal. <laughs> Okay, uh, looks like Cardi as my, is... As my father-in-law says, no adult man uh, spends time catching Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly a false statement. Uh, I have to turn in my adult man card. Uh, so, as I mentioned, Carney is holding something out here. What is it? Oh, he's got one uh, that is about cyborgs and transhumanism, which Ooh. is something that Robert and I have been weaving in and out of over the last... Gosh... Three months we've done various episodes that tie into this theme. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this actually came to us in May. I wish we'd read it earlier. Uh, and he originally, uh, this isn't his whole letter, but he originally wanted to ask us about doing an episode on GMOs based on the organic food episode that we did. But he tied into the cyborgs episode that we did, which is the first of, I want to say like three or four episodes where we talked about sort of the future of changing the human body. And he says, in your cyborgs episode, you touch on the ethical quandaries of performing surgical enhancements before a child is born. I thought you might find it interesting to know that in a way this does already happen. My son has spina bifida, a birth defect wherein the spinal column fails to close properly. It leads to permanent paralysis and often brain damage. He actually underwent surgery before he was born to repair the defect and minimize the impact. He still lost some nerves, but probably saved enough nerves above the knees that he's able to walk or he'll be able to walk with braces. To make it weirder, another benefit of the surgery is reversal of associated hindbrain herniation, which if left unchecked leads to hydrocephalus and malformation of the corpus callosum. A downside in my son's case is that he was born extremely premature, 26 26 weeks, 2 pounds, a significant risk to the surgery, and about 10% are born early. This caused a stage 4 inter- 
ventricular hemorrhage, wiping out most of the left side of his brain. Young brains can recover from this to some extent, but science does not yet understand how exactly it does this. A good lead is the subject of neuroplasticity and neural reuse. See the book After Phrenology for a rather technical intro. So my point is, by saving his ability to walk, we also repaired one part of his brain and damaged another. So in at least two ways, fundamentally changed the architecture of his brain and the type of person he will become. The surgery was highly experimental just a few years ago, but is now considered routine, albeit rare. I think he was number 150 to get it since the experimental study ended. In all the discussion of ethics surrounding the surgery, which is what Robert and I talked about in the show uh, mainly in regards to cyborgs uh, and and babies, uh, and there's many conversations about the ethics, the primary concern has always been ensuring that the benefits outweigh the many risks involved with opening up a womb pulling the kid out, putting him back in again, and closing up mom. Jeez, that sounds horrifying to me. Like, not being a parent. That sounds absolutely (laughs) terrifying to me. The question of whether it should be done at all versus letting nature take its course never really crossed my mind, and two, my admittedly limited knowledge did not seem prevalent in the medical community. This may change as laparoscopic versions are perfected, minimizing risks, and surgery moves from mere repair to potential upgrades. So uh, that's that's from Keegan. He wanted to weigh in on that. And he actually, you know, we, we talked a little bit more over email. Uh, there's a lot here, actually. I'm not going to read a whole lot more. But we had a nice conversation with him, and he's continuing conversation with us about this. But it's just really interesting to hear about this real-world example where you and I, based on, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head the name of the um, of the theorist on Cyborg's who came up with that idea, but basically they were various scenarios in which would it or would it not be ethical right. to uh, transform someone into a cyborg and, and what does their identity become afterwards? And one of them was, what if you change a child before it's born? Um, so this was a nice real world example coming back to that. And with lots of science in it, I was unaware of any of that. Yeah, that's fascinating that that uh, pe- people think of this as a purely future concern, right? Like they don't think about right. They don't realize that it's happening in present day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I genuinely, we did that whole episode. We've been talking about transhumanism, biohacking, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. I did not realize that you can, as he puts it, take a baby out of its mother, change it physically, and then put it back in. That's no pun intended for the show. Mind blowing. Yeah. yeah. All right. It looks like we have another bit of listener mail here. This one comes from uh, listener Ra. Ra writes in and says, Hey guys, I thought this was very topical. I enjoyed your recent show on great flood myths. You may be interested to know that the latest edition of Science, August 5th, 2016, contains an article with evidence supporting a Chinese great flood myth. Um, oh, yeah. He lists the, the title of it. And he says the team used a range of com- compel- compelling measurements of sediment, compositions, and radiocarbon dating to argue that it was very plausible there was one of the greatest freshwater floods of the Holocene in the Yellow River, coinciding with the transition of the civilization in the region from the Neolithic to the Bronze Age. In case you're uh, you're interested enough, I've attached a PDF copy of the paper. Enjoy. Thanks for the show. Um, so as luck would have it, uh, we, we started receiving a number of different uh, comments about this because it is yeah. very exciting. We had just done this episode on great flood myths, and and then there was this really cool study that came out 
um, out of China. And uh, the, the main uh, professor on this is uh, Nanjing Normal University geology professor uh, Wu Qinglong. And it, uh, it actually, I actually wrote some copy and did a video about it for HowStuffWorks Now, which I'll include a link to on the landing page for this episode. But uh, as Rob points out, it's it's really fascinating because it's uh, I mean, it's actual supporting evidence for uh, for essentially what would have been um, a uh, an, an earthquake oriented um, damming of the river. Like there's yeah. a collapse of, of rock. Uh, closes off a portion of the Yellow River, Yellow River and then uh, floodwaters build up behind it until they reach a breaking point and then crash through with, I believe, like 500 times the normal, uh, uh, you know, flow strength. Yeah. Resulting in this, uh, this flood that, uh, is, is actually, you know, very important. I believe we discussed a little bit about it, uh, in Chinese mythology because yeah. it's, uh, it has to do with the rise of Yu the Great, who's the, the first, uh, emperor of the Xia dynasty, which is China's first dynasty. Dynasty, predating the the second millennium BC uh, Shang Dynasty, uh, so it's uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating topic because you see mythology, you see geology, um, and history all sort of coming together in this one. Yeah, yeah, which is what, what we saw with a lot of that flood stuff, and I think the geologists that we spoke about their work on in that episode, they they were probably fascinated by this yeah. uh, paper coming out. Hey, I got to ask a tangential question. Uh, not related to floods, but related to Chinese myth. Have you seen the trailer for this new movie, The Great Wall? Yes, I have. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on it? Um, well, when I first saw it, I thought, well, that looks like a bit. I, I tended to, to think about it in terms of like the business side. Like clearly, yeah. this is a, like an international production. They're going for a large Chinese audience as yeah. well as a U.S. audience by having Matt Damon in it. But I didn't really think much about it beyond that because I'm like, I can't see what the monster looks like. Right. I'll decide whether I'm interested or not when I see the, a picture of the monster. Yeah. But then I, uh, I ended up running, uh, running across the, uh, the commentary from, um, from actress, uh, Constance Wu. Oh, who, yeah. Uh, is yeah. Of course, most famous, I think, to, to our listeners for being on the, uh, the sitcom Fresh Off the Boat. Yeah. And, uh, she had a lot of, uh, you know, very stark criticisms. I would uh, imagine. Yeah. Of this, uh, particular, um, story. So for our listeners, if you don't know, and Joe, you haven't seen the trailer yet, it seems uh, the, from the trailer, uh, the, it looks like it is a story about why the Great Wall was built with a fantasy angle to it, that the secret history of the Great Wall is that there were like monsters or dragons or something mm-hmm. like that. Oh, that, that sounds kind of fun. Uh, yeah. On the surface, that sounds great. But but Matt Damon is the hero. Oh. Matt Damon and the guy who plays uh, um, one of the Dorn guys on Game of Thrones yeah. are like these like monster killers that they bring in to help them. So it's an, it's like an all Chinese cast, except those two guys who ostensibly saved the uh, day, I yeah, guess that yeah. sounds pretty Hollywood. It's a little whitewashy and problematic, but it, I can, I can absolutely see from a business perspective why it's made the way it is. Well, it's, it's like Netflix, Marco Polo, which I've watched yeah. and enjoyed, but it's like you, it's like you have this, uh, this, this Western figure at the heart of the drama to anchor it in, yeah. uh, you know, Western expectations. And then that at times that feels really icky, dishonest and icky. Yeah. 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 I just, I don't know. I, when I see stuff like that, it may, immediately made me think of our episode on flood myth and how like we're, we're building mythology today still with movies like this. Yeah. Right. Uh, but they're just not, Instead of explaining the flood, they're sort of quasi explaining the history of the Great Wall in a, in a fake fantasy way. You know, I mean, that's kind of fun. Like, I don't mind. Yeah, like, no, no, that, that like aspect sci-fi of revisionist history. Yeah. But but in such a way as this, it seems weird. Yeah. 
Well, speaking of uh, going back and looking at old myths and and in reinterpreting in them in light of what we know today, we got a great, just awesome email from our listener, Katie, mm. uh, about responding to both the flood episode and uh, Robert and I, uh, our episode on geomythology and uh, monsters. Yeah, we've been hitting the mythology hard. Uh, we've had a couple of core themes over the last few months. Yeah. Mythology, biohacking, fish. Fish? Yeah, we have done a number of um, marine oh, biology yeah, okay. episodes. You know, we had uh, Mara um, Hart come back on and talk I, about that. I didn't uh, think about that as a theme, but fish. yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, anyway, Katie writes, quote, Love your show to pieces, especially the geomythology episode and the last episode about flood myths. When you guys were talking about the Old Norse flood myths, you were talking about the Emir, uh, who made all the world. As you guys say, very metal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ymir's totally brutal. There's got to be some metal band out there named Ymir. If not like 20. There has to be, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Katie continues, There is another mythological flood in Old Norse mythology that comes from the poem Voluspo. Okay. And she says, Voluspo is a poem found in the Poetic Edda, wherein you get everything about Norse mythology. For some context, the Volvar were the female soothsayers, and the poem, which translates to the seeing of the seer, is meant to be a recitation of a vulva uh, uh, that she gives to an unnamed audience about the forthcoming Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. That you brings- guys, didn't you just record an episode about that before I walked in the studio? We just talked about we it. We did talk about Ragnarok. Sweet. Bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, she writes, uh, among the many awesome epic verses are several at the end that describe the world falling into the sea. Uh, now we can't read all of these. She's put a bunch in. They're really cool. I just want to read one. She says, quote, or she doesn't write this. She <laughs> copies in the uh, translation of the, the Edda. Yeah. yeah. Um, the sun turns black. Earth sinks in the sea. The hot stars down from heaven are whirled. Fierce grows the steam and the life-feeding flame till fire leaps high about heaven itself. Nice. That yeah. sounds like some Mana War lyrics right there. Oh, that is so much better than Mana War lyrics. Have you guys Man seen the Mana War lyric generator? It'd be more around? about brave kings with the hammer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's awesome though. I love that how that stuff plays out in present, present context uh, and the mythology of it too. Oh yeah. Uh, so anyway, K- Katie quotes more of the poem, but she goes on to say, so a giant flood comes and destroys the earth in a very Noah's deluge type of way. Stars fall in this flood, uh, like possibly comets coming to Earth that was referenced in the episode, but the falling stars seem more to set the cataclysmic stage rather than recording any cause and effect occurrence with comets. Like the Utnapishtim and Noah's floods, the world emerges from the waters renewed and the gods come back to their halls and everything is beautiful and growing again. In this poem, however, the world ends again when a dragon flying up from the Earth bringing uh, uh, forth darkness and destruction. You guys talked about dragons in the geomythology episode, and I forget if you had made any kind of speculations about dragons being connected with volcanoes or not. We only very briefly mentioned mm-hmm. it, but we did. I think, is this dragon it. she's referring to, the Midgard Serpent? I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Uh, but Which is it, part of the Ragnarok mythology. Oh, yeah, the Jorgamander. Yeah. yeah. But she says, the poetic Edda was transcribed in Iceland, where they definitely have volcanoes. That's certainly true. Yep. Skipping ahead just a little for time, she says it's a pretty cool thing to think about, especially because this dragon brings darkness that destroys men like clouds of ash that have been known to cover Iceland and northern Europe in ash clouds that block out the sun and cause the summer to be basically winter. 
on a sort of related geomythology note in the Edic, Edic poem, and I'm going to do my best here, Vathprud Nismal, Odin is discussing how humans will survive a fimble winter, a cataclysmic winter that uh, precedes Ragnarok. There were a series of extreme weather events in 536 or so that scholars believe were a historical fimble winter, where Europe basically didn't have a summer for a while and tons of people died. In Old Norse religion, there is a distinct difference between an earlier religious period where human and bog sacrifices were made, complete with distinct artifacts, and a later period where Odin, Thor, and co. are tramping around, killing giants and whatnot, and where the customs found in archaeology changed. People think this separation of practice came about because of social dislocation that happened because of this fimble winter around the 530s. Going back to the uh, Voluspo, in earlier verses, they talk about the war between two sets of gods, with the group belonging to Odin being victorious. Some of the older gods, Friar and Freya, uh, of particular note, were taken as prisoners by Odin's groups and were assimilated into their pantheon. And then she gives some verses about it uh, that are also cool. But for time, I'm going to skip on to the end of her message here. She says, quote, I love this theory because there is geological evidence that there were extreme weather pa- patterns around the time the archaeological evidence shows a dramatic change in customs, which resonates in the mythological poems that trickle down. I'd be happy to go in more depth with the evidence, but this email is getting so long. Uh, anyways, hope you guys enjoyed this, and I would highly recommend reading the Velespo if you haven't. It's the poem where the uh, the stuff with uh, Ymir comes from, along with the creation of the world and its destruction during Ragnarok, war, into the world by flood, rebirth, and destruction again by dragon. It's a pretty badass poem in all 66 stanzas. <laughs> Should be read with lots of notes because there are tons of names for the names of gods. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Katie. That was an excellent email and we really appreciate all of uh you educating us on the yeah totally the the, the horrors of the north <laughs> I, I think it's also one thing that i got out of this that i liked is mentioning like multiple flood myths within the norse tradition and you know indeed not only are there you know multiple flood myths from around the world in different cultures within cultures you have multiple versions Ch- chinese culture alone has a, has several different flood mythologies uh, and the the one that we talked about in our episode and that I alluded to earlier is just like the most dominant of yeah. them. Yeah. And I, you know, like after that episode and after hearing her reading her letter, I, I kind of wish I could take like a, a course on Norse mythology now. Like yeah. I have like a passing familiarity with it and I'm sure like I could do like a sort of self-guided deep dive into it on my own, but I'd really like somebody who understands it to kind of walk me through it. Like, like you so wake up on a, on a ship <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, oh, that'd be in a great. Pitched uh, freezing ocean, and your, your studies begin. You did, yeah. Oh, nice. Like a wilderness uh, adventure slash Norris mythology. Yeah, I'm, pick, I'm yeah, picking, They uh, use they blood the keel with your body. And say, <laughs> this is how you learn. <laughs> well, I got one here uh, from Dr. Britt M. Starkovich, who is a professor at the University of. Tubingen in Germany, I believe is how you pronounce it. looks like she is an archaeozoologist professor. Uh, and she writes to us about our ap- our episode on Akadem Gorodok. She says, Dear Robert and Christian, I love your show. You really caught my attention in your Akadem Gorodok episode when you talked about the Russian domestic foxes. 
I teach archaeology, okay, archaeology, at the University of Tübingen in Germany, and this is one of my all-time favorite topics. I specialize in the human use of animals in the past, what humans ate, what different species were domesticated, etc. I wanted to send you a link to some videos of foxes interacting with people. These these are the specific foxes from Academic Uh She says, I find the, quote, aggressive or normal wild version a bit depressing, but the tame one is absolutely absolutely adorable. They're cool videos. I recommend checking them out. Uh, they're hosted on Illinois University's website. Uh, she also says, you mentioned in your episode the different coloring patterns. I assume in your research you saw it's called piebald, which is also a coloring that shows up in a lot of other domesticated animals, border collies, Jersey cows, tuxedo cats, spotted pigs, and horses. The physical changes in these foxes, given that they were only being selected for behavioral traits, has totally caused us to rethink how we understand domestication and the modern diversity found among different breeds of animals. The last thing I wanted to mention is that for a time, this is awesome, there was a guy in the United States who would help arrange the import of one of these domesticated foxes to Europe or America if you had an extra $9,000 lying around. (laughs) So if you wanted to get an Academ Gorodok fox, some shady dude. That sounds illegal. Would get you one. Uh, and she says his website hasn't been updated in a few years. She provides a link. She says, I'm not sure what the deal is. I'm a huge pet lover, but find it unethical to keep a non-domesticated animal as a pet. These little guys have enough genetic changes, though, that I dream of someday having one. Well, see, that's all well and good until the fox gets too big and people flush it down the toilet and then they uh, become mutant sewer foxes. Mutant sewer foxes. Is it going to be Academ Gorodok Fox the movie? Is that is that what you're <laughs> pitching here, Joe? Oh, yeah. Thank you very much, Britt. That, that's really cool to learn. I, did, I, I mean, when we talked about it, I think I maybe casually said as an aside, I wonder if you can get one of these foxes. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm still working on this. I think it's you're, you're, te- you're, teenage mutant Academ Gorodok foxes. Oh, nice. Hmm. Well, you know, in in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics, there is a fox ninja. That oh, they, there is. They hang out with. Oh, yeah. is it a is it a lady fox? Is it? It is. Like the, yeah. The, the the fox spirit. Yes. Uh, mythology? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally. What's totally. her name? I can't remember the name of it. It begins with an A. Uh, she's like a white fox with some markings and stuff, yeah. but she's occasionally an ally of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And yet again, showing how much I know about 80s cartoons. <laughs> Is there a fox Pokemon? Yeah. <laughs> There's multiple fox Pokemon. What? How do you not know this? <laughs> All right. Here's another one. This one uh, comes to us from Sarah. She says, longtime listener, first time writer. I'm a huge fan of the show and listen to every new episode as soon as I can. Your episode about incomplete art was incredibly fascinating, but of course, you weren't able to include every unfinished project. But I wanted to point out a noticeable piece of unfinished art, the musical Rent. Huh, I didn't know this. The writer of the musical, Jonathan Larson, died the night before the show was to start preview performances. According to the production staff, the show still had a lot of issues that needed to be worked out, but they were hesitant to move forward without the show's creator. They chose not to write anything else, only to rework the existing material. The show as it exists today is only a portion of the vision that Larson had for the show. We will never know how the show could have changed if Larson had been able to finish it, but what we're left with maintains Larson's legacy while being a highly popular and hugely influential production. This is important because it shows how a work can be finished 
without betraying the original ideas of its creator. I can't wait to see what else y'all have in store for your podcast, and hopefully y'all will never be included in the list of things that went on unfinished. Thanks for blowing my mind with every new episode. Well, I will have to say, unfortunately, I think by nature we will have to be unfinished. How can we finish talking about all the things that will blow your mind? Well, speak for yourself. I believe we can, yeah, we well, can complete we our work the here. the three of our minds into Carney, and we just continue <laughs> talking for eternity. Oh, it's true. Once we process the entire libra- library of Babel, we uh-huh. Uh-huh. We'll have exhausted and all possible uh, synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so was the I'm, I'm curious now if the version of Rent didn't have 524 hours, 600 minutes. Is that a song for Rent? I don't think yeah. you got that See, right. That's the only Did thing you? I know. I think the numbers are probably wrong. Yeah. That's all I know about Rent is huh. that thing. Yeah. I, I, I am. I have to plead ignorance on on the project, but it's interesting to learn about it. Though. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Um, I, I want to mention real quick as far as incomplete works go. This is one that uh, I learned about researching the episode that Joe and I uh, just put together. Uh, that has to do with uh, rapture and utopia and transhumanism. But apparently Your average stuff to blame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Average. <laughs> um, there's a, a work, an incomplete utopian novel by uh, Sir Francis Bacon. Um, 1626 or so, uh, titled The New Atlantis, uh, that deals with a post-transhuman, a proto-transhumanist utopian uh, society on the island of Bin Salem, where there's no slavery, slavery or poverty, and everybody's ruled over by uh, a group of religiously tolerant uh, scientific elites. So it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting. That was apparent. Yeah, that was published, I think, a year after his death. Hmm. Um, but uh, an er- very early proto-trans-humanist uh, uh, work, but also uh, incomplete. Yeah. Picking up on that, I can offer a couple of ideas uh, ab- about incompleteness that we heard back from listeners. Our, our listener, Jim in New Jersey, who often emails us with, with great email and uh, awesome feedback, he wrote us about the incompleteness episode, and I, I can't read his whole email. He talked about uh, the, the TV show Nashville, <laughs> but he uh, also... Big s- hit, I believe, with the... Uh, um, Sminty ladies, they're huge national oh, yeah? fans. Huh. Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he offers some uh, psychological feedback on the idea of of why why we stick with incomplete works of art. Uh, you know, why we've got to know the end, even maybe if we're not loving it anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I use the example of Lost. Uh, how like I. I got to the point where I don't think I liked the show anymore, but I had to keep going because I wanted to see how it ended. And then I was very disappointed. But anyway, uh, Jim says, uh, quote, sticking with something you've invested in falls into the sunk cost fallacy. This is the economic idea that you stick with something wasteful only because you've already invested a lot of resources into it. Uh, think of someone remaining in a bad relationship because they've already invested five wasted years into it. I think this is a good example. Once you've already put the time in with something and and our relationships with media are in many ways kind of like our relationships with people, even if, you know, they're not really changing based on our behavior. We sort of feel like it's transactional. Uh, you, you feel like, well, I've put so much into this. I've got to know how it turns out. Yeah. So even if, you know, you, you're at season five, episode four, and if that's the first episode you saw, you probably wouldn't continue. 
Uh, now that you've watched everything that came before, you're stuck with it psychologically. Uh, but then he goes on to say, the related term to this is the lost opportunity cost. By sticking with a failed endeavor, you're not available for something better. So the person who's stuck in a bad five-year relationship because of sunk cost is also missing out on the opportunity to start a relationship with their soulmate. And I think this also applies to media. You know, we, we've got limited time in our lives to, to read books and, and watch movies and, and experience all the great stories that we want to interact with and, and have inform our brains. You, you can't, you can't experience it all. So it kind of sucks to realize that you spent a lot of time stuck with a story that you didn't really love because you were motivated by the desire to see how it ends. Hmm. And here's one more uh, about the incomplete, unfinished episode uh, and, and unfinished works of art from our listener, Taylor. Taylor says, uh, Dear Steph, to blow your mind, I was just listening to your episode on incomplete and unfinished works, particularly your discussion of TV shows and book series that are unfinished, and I was surprised how little you discussed fandom. I think we did mention it a little, but yeah, I don't, a little bit. we didn't get very deep into it, I guess. Uh, Taylor writes, when people come across a series where they have to wait for the next installment or when there will be no more installments, many times they finish it themselves. Huge communities online around mm-hmm. fan art, fan fiction, and other fan works thrive, especially for source material that is unfinished. Oh, yeah. Fan creators Just look were- at the Firefly Serenity community. Oh, yeah. Uh, Taylor continues, fan creators will also complete, quote, com- quote, complete the source material by adding elements they feel should have been in the story or would just like to see in the story, even if it's completely unrealistic. They'll get characters together that did not end up together in the canon, revive characters that died in the canon, sometimes completely replace the universe the canon exists in altogether. The episode also reminded me of my own worst experiences with unfinished works. I do a lot of cooperative writing and role playing, and I can attest that a story ended prematurely is all the more painful when you had a hand in creating it. I have even taken to writing shorter stories to avoid that feeling. That's hmm. interesting. Hmm. Uh, anyway, Taylor says, I think we've all been there. Yeah. All of us who write fiction. Yeah. Uh, so I'll just finish up. Taylor says, I want to thank you and the whole House Stuff Works podcast crew. I haven't written in before, uh, but I've been following this and a few of your other podcasts, like Stuff You Should Know and Stuff They Don't Want You to Know for a while. I always feel as if I'm smarter, have more topics for conversation, and I'm better suited to analyzing things when I'm done listening. Good luck and have a mind-blowing summer. You can tell this came from a while ago. But thank you so much, Taylor. That was a, a thoughtful and, and very nice email. Yeah, so like, uh, I, I'm very interested in this topic. as I, You guys know, like, yeah. I, I have a background in cultural studies and did a lot of work on fandom. Uh, in particular, Henry Jenkins uh, has a whole basically established a whole discipline on fandom. So it's interesting to hear their perspective on this. Yeah, that might be something fun to tackle in the future. Yeah. Um, you know, an, an author that I really uh, enjoy, and I know you've been reading some of his stuff recently, uh, yeah. Michael Shea. Oh, yeah. Um, I love him. I, I love how uh, his, some of it, I think, his earliest, if not his first uh, novel, was a uh, basically an unofficial it was basically fan fiction. Yeah, basically fan fiction. He was a big fan of Jack Vance's um, 
books in the dying earth series yeah. and he caught him up they wrote him and said hey i'm writing i've, I've written this uh the sequel uh a book that would go on to be published as inyana is the title and it's a fabulous jack vancey adventure that has it that has a you know a distinctive uh michael shea twist on everything and he he was basically uh jack vance uh said well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna read it but you have my blessing go you know get it published do whatever it's amazing it would yeah. never happen nowadays. <laughs> yeah it's hard to imagine it happening now but in this case you know it, it launched uh this guy's uh career and oh yeah he, he went on to, to write a number of just wonderful books that are very much you oh. know, distinctively his. If you haven't heard us sing his praises before on other episodes or especially on our, our uh, summer reading episodes, Michael Shea is fantastic. And uh, I'm actually borrowing the incomplete Nift the Lean stories from Robert right now. And it's I read a couple pages every night before bed. It's just so good. It's the best fantasy like the the smartest fantasy I think I've ever read. Like wow. He could just constructs these amazing worlds. Yeah. Okay, so this next one is from Rowan, who is local to us here in Atlanta. Uh, and I'm going to try to, it's a longish letter, so I'm going to try to edit it down a little bit. Um, he just lets us know that he's a bio nerd, uh, and he's written into us before, and he used to work in an HPV lab and is in love with the DIY biohacking community. So when he heard us doing episodes about transhumanism and biohacking, he got excited. So he wrote in to tell us this. Regarding the man who developed EV, and this is in relation to our tree man disease episode, EV is the uh, shortened name for tree man disease. After cutting his knee as a teenager, that makes sense to me. Wounds are great for introducing germs. HPV, for instance, usually infects mucous membranes like genitalia, mouth, throat, etc. Not places like your knee where there's a thicker barrier, but a wound could circumvent that barrier and let infection get a foothold. I don't have time to dive into the research, but I wonder if there's some correlation between people getting the infection in unusual places and people developing extreme symptoms like tree man disease. Who knows? The HPV strains you guys listed off are not super common. They It might be part of the reason that it's so rare if it requires a rare strain and a rare genetic mutation, plus sunlight and mysteries. <laughs> Which is, yeah, and they just don't have real answers yet to what's going on with it. Another thing about HPV infection, you usually have more than one strain. It'd be interesting to know if particular combinations showed up more often or if different strains interacted with each other somehow. None of the ones you listed are in the vaccines, but they're working on a more general vaccine that would protect against all HPV strains. It wouldn't help people who already had the disease, but it could prevent any more cases. A bit of hope for your depressing episode. Yeah. <laughs> Last fun fact about about HPV, you guys said it's super common. It's so common, in fact, that we have a hell of a time finding negative controls for our tests. It's hard to find anyone who hasn't been exposed to HPV. That's comforting. Most of the negative controls end up coming from children's samples. And then he gets into biohacking, okay? He says, biohacking... The episodes that we did were pretty neat, he says. Thank you very much. As a kind of not really biohacker myself, I enjoyed them, though I'd like to note that transhumanists are just a tiny section of the biohacking and DIY bio community. Anyway, I happen to be local and thought that you might want to know that at least two makerspaces, hackerspaces in Atlanta are trying to get a biohacking scene going. Maybe we'll be like, uh, we can, we can like get together with these guys and get some magnets put in our fingers. I'm a member at Freeside Atlanta. We're in the process of setting up a lab. We have a class on engineering glow bacteria, which will run again as soon as I 
get things together. I'm editing that. <laughs> he mentioned some other ones that are uh, around town. Uh, for people who aren't local, you probably wouldn't be familiar with the, the suburbs of Atlanta. Um, and and says that there's some people working on brain computer fr- computer interfaces uh, and teams that are building an EEG from scratch. So it sounds like Atlanta's got a burgeoning biohacking community. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's very interesting. He's plugging for that. So if you are out there, you listen to our biohacking episodes and our transhumanism episodes, and you thought, that sounds like it's something for me, you might want to look into this. Uh, he says he says that the spaces have public events that are listed on meetup.com, and you can check those out. Uh, side note, a friend of mine, unrelated to us doing those episodes, uh, became interested in getting mag- magnets put in his fingers. Oh, wow. And went out and found a... a a tattooist, I guess, or a tattoo artist who performs that function as well. Huh. So he's getting the, he's doing the magnet thing. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, here's a, one more piece of listener mail. Uh, this one is a, a quick one. And, uh, oh, this one comes, it's another one from Jim. I hate to, to read one, two by the same author, but this is just a real quick one with a, a book ref, a book recommendation in it. Robert, Joe, and Christian. As for synthetic meat and or cannibalism and fiction, I have two suggestions. <laughs> Pursue at your own peril. Okay. Um, so uh, the first one he mentions is The Food of the Gods by author C. Clark, which I read decades ago in The Wind from the Sun, a book of short stories. And I really mean short stories. I think each story was no more than a page or two long. So like flash fiction yeah. before it was called that. <laughs> I've heard of this story, but I haven't read it. He says, this short story addresses the very questions you brought up in your synthetic meat episode by Clark 50 plus years ago before the technology existed. Um, Which were basically, would you eat synthetic meat or would you eat synthetic human meat? Yeah. Like if it was it was synthesized human flesh, would you eat it? What's the problem? Yeah. That's what I said. Eat up. I mean, I said I'm a vegetarian. The problem with eating human meat is that it comes from it had to come from a human. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so he's had more. He said uh, there was well, a second one. There's a second one. And this one, I imagine we, we have probably all three read the survivor type by Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. It's an entry in oh, skeleton yeah. through. Yeah. And also a book of short stories. A pretty, dis- pretty, it's pretty disturbing in a Stephen King kind of way. I Several- think I, I think I read a quote from Stephen King where he was saying like, I think my favorite types of stories to write are the really nasty grizzly ones. But on this <laughs> one, I think I went too far. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's also been, I didn't add this to the listener mail, but several people have written into us both uh, over mail and on Facebook about, uh, cause I mentioned Wolverine on that episode and uh-huh. whether he cuts his own skin off and eats it at any point because he can just regrow his own flesh. Yeah. And they pointed out that there's an issue of X-Force that I forgot about that I've read where Deadpool, the famous character who just had a movie this summer, uh, does that to himself and feeds bits of himself to another character who's like dying and starving. So he cuts off his own skin and little chunks of arm flesh and feeds it to him. Gross. Wait, what, wait, where does the on. mask come from? Like he's really not even beginning to obey basic. Oh, I think Deadpool. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, it's nonsense <laughs> it's magic. science fiction, but he's like Wolverine. He regrows. Uh, Why I, is he fighting crime or supervillains when he could be feeding the masses? He's it's, not. Deadpool's a mercenary. man. Oh, that's right. Yeah. All right. He's got an out. Yeah. Uh, sorry. We shouldn't. We we just went off in geek territory. We we didn't explain what happens in the story. Survivor oh, yes. type. Uh, oh, yeah. Very Hit brief it. synopsis. There is a drug smuggler who mm-hmm. has a bunch of uh, heroin. Specifically. Her- yeah. But has a bunch of heroin with him. He gets stranded on a desert island with nothing to eat. Eat. So he realizes he's starving to death and he realizes that, well, you know, I could just drug myself so I don't feel pain and then cut my foot off and eat it. And that and it 
proceeds from there. Yeah. 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 I guess in that scenario, I would probably OD on the heroin before I would uh, just use it as a painkiller to cut off my own limbs. See, the thing is, he found the pamphlet from the airplane that says, um, auto cannibalism, is it for you? And it's all about surviving (laughs) a plane crash through auto cannibalism. That would be amazing if stewardesses have had to explain auto cannibalism to you before a plane took off. It's it's definitely a, a disturbing one, and one I remember uh, well from from when I read it the first time, like in junior high. Yeah, so. I read it when I was a kid too. Okay, so on that note, we yeah. should probably wrap things up. On the auto cannibalism note, yeah, that that is only just a slice of the vast uh, listener mail um, flesh chunk that we have, uh, <laughs> consumed for you today. Yeah, we only were able to cut a little bit off and chew on it for forty five minutes. Sorry. But we will get to more in the next couple of months. Yeah, and like I said before, if uh, if we didn't get your, to your email, please don't take that as a as a slight against uh, the wonderful feedback that you send us. There, there's just too much good stuff for us to get to. Uh, we can and do please, a whole podcast. It's just reading letter mail. Yeah, so so please keep sending it. We we love to read what y'all out there have to say. So maybe you're listening and you're thinking to yourself, "Hey, I didn't know that I could get my uh, messages read on a podcast that I like listening to all the time. How do I do that?" Well, there's a number of ways that you can do that. You can always reach out to us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram, although I would not recommend that you write us a letter on Instagram. That seems like a bad (laughs) format for it, but you can see lots of cool pictures on there from us. Uh, All of those, we are below the mind. Write us there. You can write us messages. You can follow us and see all the things that we post, not just our own content, but the weird, bizarre science oddities that we find throughout the week. Where else can they find us, boys? Well, you can head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all of our videos, our podcast episodes, links out to those social media accounts, and more. And, of course, you can always email us directly at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 